Thank you. Good morning. Um, can we just thank Abs for this morning? It was so great. So thank you. Um, it, it really is such a privilege that we have to be able to pause in our rhythm and routine and obligations three times a week to gather together and to lean into God's word. Um, so it's such a privilege to be with you all this morning again. So Ancestry.com is the largest for-profit genealogy company in the world. As of November 2018, the company claimed to provide access to approximately 10 billion historical records, to have 3 million paying subscribers, and to have sold 14 million DNA kits. Minimum cost to join is about 150 bucks. So people are paying to find out about their ancestors, about their family. Why is that? I think it's because we know that understanding our families actually help us understand ourselves. Our families shape us in irreplaceable ways. And this is true because God is the one who designed the family, and he designed the family to form us and to shape us. This is true for me. When I think of family, I think of growing up as a pastor's kid in Kansas. My dad planned a church, so Saturday evenings we went and we set up for the church, and then we would go out for pizza. Those things shaped me. We were in the church whenever the doors were open. I also think of Christian traditions, Christmas traditions, sorry, and camping in Colorado, of Yahtzee tournaments, nature walks, and Sunday afternoon popcorn. Those traditions and rhythms molded me and formed my love and my perspective. Now, family brings to mind my husband, Gustavo, and our three kids. I think about the, tra the traditions we are trying to create. I think about the arguments. I think about the laughter and the opportunities for repentance and forgiveness. So any way you look at it, family is a weighty word, right? A complex web of relationships. And I know that probably for many in this room, the idea of family actually stirs up emotions that you would rather not think about. For some of you, family is not a happy term or idea. And for many of you, while family is a very transformative agent in your life, you may also, it may also be the most tangible experience of loss or sin or pain. Because it's true that even in the happiest of families, sin wreaks havoc. It's in the context of our family where our sin, our selfishness, our greed, and our anger are often most evident and unfiltered. This is true of the families in the Bible, too. Immediately following the tragic disobedience of Eve and Adam, what do we see? We see, we see sin creeping in to sibling relationships. Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers. Fast forward a little more, you see competition and jealousy in the story of Leah and Rachel. And then even for, farther on, think of the parable of the prodigal son and the relationship he had with the older brother. Honestly, when reading through the biblical narrative, it's kind of disconcerting how dysfunctional families are and were. So it should surprise us a little, or maybe even a lot, that God would use family language when talking about his plan to fix the things that are broken. It starts at the beginning. When God blesses an Adam and Eve, when he blesses Adam and Eve, he talks about offspring. Noah's family is saved through the flood. At the heart of the Abrahamic covenant 
is the promise of a multitude of children. And we see that multitude, right? It's spared through the famine, um, through the family of Joseph, and then later they grow in such number that Pharaoh is afraid of them and enslaves them in Egypt. But then soon after that family history is defined by God's incredible rescue and their inheritance of the promised land. All throughout the biblical grand narrative, we see God's vision for a family that would display his character. He continually preserves and protects and guides and disciplines. Something special must be happening with families. So that's where the tension lies. Why would God use so much family language when families can be so messed up? Why would God desire and design to use families as the agents of redemption? Wouldn't it just be easier to pick and choose individuals and skip all the relational messiness that comes in a family relationship? Well, here's what the Bible has to say about why. From the moment God breathed life into Adam, humans were designed for relationships. Scripture teaches us that because humans are image bearers, excuse me, image bearers of a Trinitarian God, right, three persons in one God eternally relating to one another, we too reflect God when we relate to others. I also think God uses families, whether we like, because whether we like it or not, families define who we are and where we belong, identity and belonging. We identify ourselves by our family name. We talk about our birth order, our physical features that we might share with our parents, how many siblings we have. Family is also a place of belonging, right? When you go home, you have your bedroom, you have your favorite cereal bowl, you have your books, you have your clothes. You know where the snacks are. You can open up the fridge whenever you want. You can lounge around in your pajamas. We feel safe. We belong there. Well, in the Old Testament, this sense of belonging and identity was significantly tied to the biological family. If you've read through the Bible, you've come across those genealogies, right? The list of all those hard-to-read names. Those are there because in Old Testament culture and time, your family immediately identified you. Your family reputation defined you. In Old Testament terms, to be God's people meant to be the descendants of Abraham to be able to claim biological lineage. Yet, even there, we see glimpses, a small flicker of a larger family plan at work. We read instances of where non-Israelites were brought into the family. Think of Rahab and Ruth. There There are hints for us. And then something interesting happens in the New Testament. We still see importance placed on the biological family because Matthew 1 and Luke 3 actually start with the genealogy of Jesus right, the bloodline, but Jesus turns family language on its head and reveals fully what was only hinted at earlier. In Matthew 12, we read, while Jesus was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him, but he replied, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, of my Father in heaven, is my brother and sister and mother. While Jesus still placed emphasis on the biological family and reinforced the commandments to honor your father and mother, his statements would have been shocking. Actually, they are shocking. Essentially, Jesus is saying that spiritual family trumps 
biological family. That our membership in the household of God is where we should find our identity and our belonging. Later, Paul picks up on this idea. In, in the book of Ephesians, you will read it's full of family language. Here's some examples. Just listen for a second. Blessed be the God and Father of our, of our Lord Jesus Christ. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. In him, we have obtained an inheritance. In chapter 2, verse 19, Paul writes, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Be imitators of God as beloved children. For at one time you were a darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For those of us with happy families, this is easy for us to understand. The feeling of safety and acceptance and belonging and identity. But for those of us with hard or sin-soaked family stories, it's more difficult to grasp. It's probably even a little bit scary. But the family of God is unlike any earthly family. And that is where our hope lies. Because to be part of the family of God is to be brought in and welcomed into the household on the basis of what Jesus has done. We belong because Jesus belongs. It means that if we are united with Christ, if we have surrendered our life to Jesus, if we have been given a new heart through repentance and faith, then our status in the family of God is the surest, safest, most defining relationship we have ever been in. We have a new identity. It means that Jesus is our older brother and that all the spiritual blessings that he deserves as the perfect son of God are now also given to us. It means that regardless of our past family identity, we have a new one, an eternal one. As Eugene Peterson put it, no Christian is an only child. The other day, after correcting my son, he's five, for a very minor thing, I found him on the couch crying. I sat down next to him and I pulled him in for a hug and I heard him say, am I going to be fired? <laughs> I tried to stifle his smile, and then I asked him what he meant. Am I going to be fired from the family? <laughs> he repeated, he had big tears coming down his cheeks. And I wasn't, I'm not sure where he heard that language, but I assured him that you can't be fired from a family when you make a mistake. But I think that's how we often think of the family of God, right? I regularly find myself afraid that God's going to decide that he doesn't want me to be part of his family when he really finds out how prideful or lazy or distracted I am. But we can't be fired from the family. It doesn't work that way. And while our biological families aren't always the best demonstration of this, your status in God's family is never based on how good or how bad you are. Your belonging to and identifying with your new spiritual family has nothing to do with how much you read the Bible what music you listen to, what you do on the weekends, or where you go to church. Your family name has been earned for you once and for all by Jesus. You are adopted, sealed, and guaranteed a place at the family table. Nothing you do will ever make your father love you more or less. You are fully known and fully loved as a child of God. No exceptions. However, 
Being part of the family of God does mean that what you do should be consistent with who you are. In other words, if you are a part of the family of a holy God, rescued by the sacrifice of Jesus, given a new heart and freedom from sin, your words, actions, thoughts, and priorities should reflect that identity. You either live like a loved daughter or son of God, free from slavery and sin, heirs together with Christ, or you live like a child of darkness. Remember Paul's language in Ephesians? You are either a stranger or you have been brought near. You are either a slave or a son. The word of God doesn't really leave a lot of wiggle room here. Holiness matters. And not just because God says so, although that should be enough, but holiness matters because that is how we actually experience what it means to be fully human. When we operate within the boundaries that our Father has placed before us, we flourish. When we don't, we die. It's like trying to put together Ikea furniture. I love Ikea, but I don't really love Ikea instructions. So one time, my husband and I decided that we'd have a go at putting together a dresser without instructions. Let's just say that it wasn't our finest hour as a couple. We had to take it apart a few times before we finally resorted to the instructions, and we found out that if you follow the instructions one by one, you'll have an intelligently designed dresser at the end. But if you disregard the instructions and build it according to your own design, you won't get a dresser, but you will be frustrated. This is a humorous example, but this is actually what sin does. When we claim to be a child of God and yet refuse to submit to the design of our Father, we eventually end up a bunch of random pieces that can't function the way we were designed to function. And we are left aggravated and tired. This is how families are destroyed. You've probably also seen those family rules signs, right? Maybe you have one in your, your home. They are offered in all kinds of colors, and you can personalize them to include, like, the family rules that you want to include. Some examples commonly included are choose happiness, make every day count, do your best, say please and thank you. Or my personal favorite, don't wake mom up on a weekend or die. <laughs> Why are these signs attractive? Why do people hang them and buy them? Because there is an innate understanding that for a family to work, there should be some parameters, some guidelines or suggestions. We need reminders. The same is true for the family of God. We need reminders. We need a code of conduct, if you will. And we have them all over the place in this book. God spends a lot of time dealing with family relationships in here, from Genesis all the way through. We probably memorized some of these verses in Sunday school, and yet we obviously forget because the way we treat each other rarely resembles familial love or sibling concern. One another commands occur about 100 times in 94 New Testament verses. They can be divided into the categories of love and humility and unity. And then there are some random ones about kissing. But I just want to hone in on love for a minute. Hopefully bring some application to all of this family talk. John 13, 34 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. 
By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And we just sang about that. John 15, 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. What does it mean to love one another? I mean, what does it really mean? We see the word love all over the place, right? I love ice cream. I heart New York. Love makes the world go round. All you need is love. But what does the phrase love one another actually mean here? The passage in John tells us a few things. First, it's not optional. It is a commandment, a rule, a requirement for those in the family of God. Love is not something that you can fall in or out of, and you cannot just do it when you feel like it. It doesn't give any exceptions. It doesn't say to love only those who are easy to love or who affirm you or with whom you have common interests. It is an all-encompassing commandment. Second, our model for this constant love is Jesus himself. If we want to know how to love the way a child of God should, we look to Jesus himself. Jesus' love cared nothing for his own reputation. He died, dined, sorry, <laughs> dined with the most unpopular people. He touched lepers. He befriended the lonely. He listened to children. He confronted sin. He called for repentance. And he died for his enemies. The love of Jesus was anything but warm and fuzzy. His love was intentional, healing, truthful, and it cost him his life, literally. What would it do for this community if we started loving one another the way that Jesus loves us? How would it change the way that we talk about one another? How would it impact the way we date? You date. I don't date anymore. But you date. What would loving like Jesus do on, on the halls or in the classroom? Would it take away our desire to compare or gossip? Would it embolden us to actually confront one another in love with truth, with the goal of repentance? Are we willing to die to self in order to love another? Third, loving one another as siblings, as family, has a purpose way bigger than our own little happiness. John tells us that, we, that the way we love one another is the way that the world knows who Jesus is. What are we saying about our Heavenly Father, about Jesus, when we are fighting and comparing and using one another for our own satisfaction? Our enemy, Satan, desires nothing more than to destroy our unity and love because it demolishes our witness and it misrepresents our Savior. Our love for one another actually has kingdom purpose. As you all probably know, today marks the 18th anniversary of 9-11. I remember that day well. I was actually a student here when it happened. And I remember gathering in a TV in the mailroom just as the second plane crashed into the tower. The feeling in the air was palpable. We all knew, even if we couldn't articulate it at the moment, that the world would never be the same. Something major had just shifted. I remember trying to call my parents in Kansas and having a hard time getting, connecting because the lines were so flooded with calls. I remember this feeling to, to get in the car and drive home. And this urge was nationwide. The way that this country united and stepped in and helped 
and sacrificed and wept together was astonishing. Hate or comparison or an us versus them mentality just melted away in the face of what had happened. No longer did we care about the things that divided us as a country. We now had a common enemy, a common story, and a common purpose. Friends, we too have a common enemy who prowls around desiring nothing more than to, to destroy us. We also have a common story and a common purpose. We are the family of God. Look around. These are your brothers. These are your sisters. And we are called to want to love one another the way that Jesus loves us. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for calling us out of darkness and into the light. Thank you for rescuing us from slavery, from drawing us near as your children, for adopting us as daughters and sons of God. Help us through your spirit to love one another earnestly and from the heart. It's because of the work and in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.